This is Andy South, Permaculture Perspective. Um, here in my apartment in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, after teaching a permaculture design course with Mark Krawcheck. And Mark and I have a range of things we like discussing, and we were getting into a pretty interesting conversation about what uh, is happening in Vermont in terms of energy solutions, energy strategies, ways to bring more renewables into the infrastructure, and some of the pluses and minuses of uh, different scales of these infrastructural retrofits that we'll be exploring through the lens of a new regional kind of permaculture approach to bringing this local resilience, local autonomy, and what scale is the right scale and how do we make use of what's here already, and exploring these themes conversation with Mark Krawcheck, Keyline Vermont, is Mark's website, and a little bit of a cavern here in my apartment, so bear with us on some of these tips where we explore having a discussion here a little bit more informal first and continues about it. Kind of facilitated by organizations that are well intentioned but also capitalizing on 
pushback in that regard. Um, people are really concerned, especially as farmers becoming less profitable. People are taking a pretty big payout initially for, you know, sometimes, you know, half, one, two, five-acre solar farms or larger. Um, and that's kind of caught the regulatory agencies off guard, and it's become kind of a, um, a local rights issue, too. Like, a lot of towns don't really have ordinances in place, and so um, that's been a hot-button topic. Um, and then there's also been, like, larger-scale, more regional issues from an energy standpoint, and that's what we were just talking about, which was uh, one proposed project uh, where apparently in order to meet demands and and like regulatory goals of having a certain balance of their energy portfolio. This is uh, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, I believe. They, they're trying to have, uh, you know, pushing for maybe, I don't know, 20% renewables in their portfolio. So what they're ultimately going to do, though, is outsource that production to other places and then try to you know, develop the conduit to bring that all that electricity to those locales in the Adirondacks with mega wind type installations and then the massive uh, Hydro-Quebec dam that has long been in existence for at least for, I don't know, a few decades, I believe. I'm not actually sure of the specifics, but um, kind of moving that to, uh, you know, to that part of the country. I keep talking, but... No, that's great. All right. I, you know, because that's all really interesting information that you need to what's going on in Vermont, which, you know, there's a whole scale around renewables that need to be looked at when we talk about retrofitting and at what distance, which I think is a great point that you're starting to get into, is, you know, why lose the availability, the reliability, you know, the reliability, the real... You miss a lot of opportunities when it's coming from this far away. So let's talk some more about what's going on with Hydro-Quebec and some of the, the ways they want to bring that to the Northeast. Yeah, so I can speak a little less specifically to my knowledge about Hydro-Quebec, um, except for the fact that my understanding is it was a mega dam installed. Um, I, have, I wish I could quote some numbers on how much energy it's providing, but I, I was under the impression that it's actually generating more juice than in, they, they have extra supply, um, extra extra product that they could deliver other places. But you and know, understanding is that you've got an issue with, in general, hydroelectric also in the northwest of the United States has a lot of excess because the power companies try to keep the price of electricity at a certain rate. And so they run into problems with basically when all the rain is happening in the Northwest, they have so much excess from the power plants that they can't figure out a dump for it in the system and keep everything else online that they use that's non-renewable when those come up to really high production levels. So there's some interfaces between the uh, conventional petroleum grid and these renewables, especially these mega hydro systems that are can be a bit overkill, it seems to me, without knowing all the engineering behind it. Yeah, but it's a pattern that I've been noticing as I read this. That is what we call big grid. Yeah. Where we're looking at, you know, how do renewables interface with the grid? I think it's also challenging. Is I mean, often they are like for-profit enterprises. I 
I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, more is better to a certain degree. Like you want to optimize the production of whatever it is that you're creating. Um, the uh, so basically, the reason why this came up as an issue in our town and our um, yeah, specifically our town in this case. This is just uh, our town, New Haven, serving as a conduit for power coming from the Adirondacks in Quebec and being delivered down to uh, uh, to, to the um, you know southern New England, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Is that they need to build that conduit or at least connect those sources. And um, I believe that our town is pretty strategically located in terms of already having, um, I, I don't know if technically it's a converter station or it's a, you know, a transformer where they can feed into some high voltage transmission lines. Because they basically have to cross from the Adirondacks in New York across Lake Champlain and then, you know, basically send all this energy. Uh, it's, it's an electrical pipeline, basically, is what they have to create, you know, a delivery mechanism. And uh, so that would be getting sent again down to uh, like the southern part of New England. Um, and so it's like the, the, the most strategic place for them to tie in is in our town. So this company, in all, this company is basically, as I understand it, was bidding for a contract with those states to find a cost-effective way to deliver the power. But they were talking about, you know, probably multi-billion dollar projects or something to that effect. And, uh, and so they're throwing, they're willing to throw a lot of money at our town. I wish I could remember the specifics. It, we were talking about this initially in the context of town meeting day in Vermont, which is um, this year, uh, this coming Monday, I think it's March 5th. And uh, essentially it's an opportunity. In each town we have um, kind of localized uh, public forums where we discuss budgetary issues, the school budget for the year, like people have a chance to voice their opinion, sometimes in more of a collective conversation, um, and other times more in an opportunity to ask questions. In our town, uh, we all the decisions are made by what's called Australian ballot, which means um, it's essentially just like a, a anonymous voting ballot. And so the next day, we meet on Monday, discuss the issues, but we don't have to stand in the corner to say which side of the issue we're on and like publicly own your, you know, who you're voting for or what side of an issue you're on. The next day we vote for it. Yeah. But that had been an issue in our town, which was, we actually were granted the ability as a community, as a ballot item, to say whether or not we supported that. It didn't necessarily mean that it still wouldn't get built in our town. Mm-hmm. Building, uh, yeah, because basically what it amounted to is then essentially building the infrastructure, running the, the wire, and then building a high-voltage DC transmission station, um, which essentially, I believe it was like five stories high, or four stories high, which is vastly out of scale for our town. Um, they were going to try to build it in a way, some people are really worried about aesthetics, you know, and that it would be well-screened, and it would kind of look like a barn, but it's, you know, five, and it's like a football field in scale. Yeah. with a constant hum. A lot of people were concerned more about the sound. Very few people were at all worried about the EMS coming from this thing. Yeah. They were... Yeah, they, there were a few people that began to bridge that subject um, in terms of its impact. There's already groups running through 
transmission lines, you know. So what they, this was proposed to be 400 megawatts of power that apparently they could run through. It was I was surprised. It was like a six-inch conduit or something like that. Like it's pretty crazy that amount of energy yeah. coming through. Just, it it wasn't more than a foot, I don't think, like the diameter of that. 400. 400 megawatts. 400,000 homes? You power up that uh, 10 megawatts is about 10,000 homes. So 400 megawatts is about 10,000 homes. So you've got to get up the calculator. But it's a lot of, I mean, they're basically <laughs> trying to contribute a significant amount of power to Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, where there's a lot of people. So, um, and the, the other thing, too, that folks were concerned about was that they were talking about laying two parallel lines because the cost of the, and which I could totally appreciate, like, you know, it's yeah. a difficult issue because here we're trying to navigate a demand to move towards greener energy yeah. in a place where there's a lot of people. Yeah. And we're potentially creating a little bit of economic activity, not a lot, you know, movement of resources from high population centers to you know, more sparsely populated places, but it is essentially the people who aren't using the energy are being forced to live with these massive turbines right. or continue right. to deal with the, the realities of Hydro-Quebec and how it right. impacted right. that land. Yeah. Um, so it's a very, you know, it's yeah. the jobs environment thing right. along with, you know, why this energy isn't even destined for the market. We're just and we're a middleman at yeah. best, it's and most of us aren't getting the money. It, that's exactly what it is. And it is going into the grid, so technically we're, you know, we're the closest in line to suck that up. Um, but it brings us back to the, like, the question of, Dave Jackson says it is the way we define a problem determines our solution. So is the problem that we don't have enough energy? There's a problem that's dirty energy, there's a problem that we're using a lot of energy really inefficiently. And it's like if you knew everybody was trying to really conserve at all scales, you know, um, how much do we really need? Yeah. Instead of how much can we lose, you know? Yeah. When it, that's a great that's a great theme to to look at is how do we redesign things ultimately to not require so much effort or energy to get work done and what kind of work are we trying to get done with energy that comes from off-site or outside of a geographic region in contrast to a design approach where we say could we get that work done with some force that's available right in the local landscape and what happens when you're importing energy from somewhere else is you're losing a lot of potential beneficial feedback loops of keeping it more local and keeping it more regional. And I wonder, in Vermont, is there advocates for a more appropriate version of a renewable kind of system for the state or for the region? Yes, and yes, and I'm not totally sure. But uh, <laughs> there's a surcharge on, I believe, everybody's electric bill. Well, first off, there's a number of uh, more localized, co like electric co-ops 
yeah. that I think already are at a scale that is more suited to, like, you can have a relationship with it. It's not con ed, you know. It would be a publicly owned electrical generation. I believe, technically, it's a cooperative business. I believe so. That's a really good question. I'm not yeah. sure of the structure because they, they call it a co-op and I'm not, yeah. Like the one where uh, the um, Lamoille Valley or where Keith and Prospect Rock Permaculture are, I know yeah. that that, I believe, is, is an electric co-op, but I actually am not exactly sure what that means in terms of ownership. Right. But, um, you know, there's several smaller power companies. Vermont's a pretty small state in terms of, you know, the, the total area. Um, but it's, it's, there's maybe a half dozen different companies, I think, that are serving, delivering power. Um, but I believe all of them, all the customers, the commercial electric customers in Vermont, pay an energy surcharge based on usage on their bill. And it's probably, you know, a cent per kilowatt hour, or probably a fraction of a cent that pays in the statewide efficiency programming. So that program is called Efficiency Vermont, and it offers training. Um, you could have like, consultants come to your house who are going to help you figure out how you can lower your energy bill. Um, and so a lot of, as well as uh, rebates on things like um, uh, heat pump water heaters, and I believe even like residential heat pumps, um, you know, systems for, for heating the house, essentially, which are acting kind of like a refrigerator in reverse. They're uh, taking, well, it depends. They can work in both directions, but um, it's a much more efficient way of converting energy into heat or cool. Um, and so uh, I was just talking with Lisa Fernandez, yeah, that was telling me they installed a heat pump. Uh, Lisa Fernandez is in Portland, Maine, for a culture teacher and, and designer. She was saying they installed a heat pump for their home. And uh, for every BTU uh, consumed of energy, it produces three BTUs. Or for every, you know, watt, it produces. I don't know if that's the converse, but it's, it's very efficient because essentially it's taking warmth from the air mm -hmm. and then, uh, like, just adding it to water or, you know, heating the space. Uh, and so, like, there are... Uh, that's why they crude expert. Yeah, exactly. Like heat pump water heaters, which yeah. that is exactly what they do. Is they're basically finding warmth in the air and then um, absorbing that through a coolant or a, a fluid and then delivering that to the water. And so they're basically much more efficient at uh, using electricity to uh, warm water. And in Vermont, there's like $500 rebate on a $1,500 unit right now. It's straight up, 500 bucks from the city of Vermont. They'll send people out to do a blower door test for your house and find where the leaks and kind of help you figure out how you might seal up your house so you lose, use less energy and lose less energy. So you're bringing those things up because that's a way to cut down on the need for energy in the first place. And you're saying, well... Vermont definitely is incentivizing what's going on with energy consumption and wanting to address that. And are there are there people who have kind of a another decentralized kind of notion as to how Vermont should be developing its energy production? 
there is definitely debate on how that would best be expressed. Um, I think it's difficult in that being that the grid is pretty interconnected too, it's like it's a feeding into the grid. It's, it kind of entered a larger market. At least that's my understanding, you know? It's not like you're just producing for your town mm -hmm. at that sort of scale. I believe that Burlington, uh, I can't, you know, I don't know all the details of the yeah, portfolio, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I believe it is 100% uh, renewable, if, if I'm not mistaken, or close to it. Um, there are, again, I mean, you can't talk about an energy source without also looking at all of its downsides, but um, they have a wood chip fueled uh, biomass power generating plant um, that has been in operation for several decades at this point. Um, my understanding is that they're using like low grade, uh, you know, forest products, unshapen, not valuable for lumber type uh, trees that are cut in forestry operations and shipping that and burning it to make electricity. Basically burning it to make heat, to heat water, to spin turbines, to you know, move electrons and make electricity. Mm -hmm. That was designed, one major thing they're missing there is that they generate all the steam that is a waste, basically, that has to be released. It could potentially, if there was infrastructure, they, yeah, they, exactly, co-generation being that they, they had a way to deliver that. Um, there's, oh, I forgot the name of the organization, but they've been, for many years, been basically trying to uh, help broker some arrangement where they could be heating homes in the greater Burlington area, where I believe the entire campus of the University of Vermont, just with this excess heat product from uh, the, the utility plant. Um, so that, that's a huge piece of their energy portfolio. There also is some small-scale hydro of sorts um, in the area. There's a capped landfill that's generating methane, and I don't know specifically the nuances of that. And then I imagine... That's my understanding, yeah. Um, and and then uh, I believe Hydro-Quebec may well play into that too. I'm not exactly sure which, you know, if, if that is. If, even if it's a mega dam, mm -hmm. you can still count that as being renewably, you know, source, as a renewable source. Um, but I think looking at the broader you know, town, from a town-by-town town standpoint, um, we're actually in pretty good shape. There's a lot of uh, hydro generation in the state of Vermont. Hydro-Quebec are close. Mm -hmm. In some ways, our hands are a little bit cleaner than other places, yeah. but a lot of it's based on proximity, too, to these resources, you know? Right. Um, right. So there was Vermont Yankee, though, also mm -hmm. for quite some time. And yes, it has, and... Uh, and I believe that is completely offline, so that is no longer contributing, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I think uh, one of the big discussions, because you were asking kind of more about like smaller scale, more localized, uh, you know, uh, advocacy for for appropriate renewable in like local power. There probably is, yeah. and. Uh, that also has been a huge point of contention, though, amongst a lot of people, because some folks feel that the, the solar farm, I'm using air quotes, yeah. um, is really 
uh, you know, a detriment to the landscape in the long term. And there's a lot of validity to that as you see these things pop up. Um, this has a life, limited lifespan. The panels, you know, 25 or 30 years, and basically they're probably shot. Um, in a lot of cases, when they're installing these in fields, there's you know concrete involved in the you know setting of the the uh, exactly and or they're driving they're driving you know metal poles in the ground. There's a lot of infrastructure that's being installed that doesn't like there's a point where it's not doing what it was supposed to anymore in two and a half decades three decades and so what's the plan for removal who owns that are we going to end up having all these you know broken down tv panels and the arrays in our land he's, he's going to yeah own it and move it and pay for it um and deal with the toxicity issues so that's a big issue um as far as that goes and exactly yeah well and and again like who's gonna you know that's like building the walmart you got a one acre of solar panels and in 25 years it's going to be out of business you know do we just have to live with that as a town yeah and like let it drop its whatever its silicon and i don't know uh <laughs> exactly like that then affecting our watershed um, are we, can we landfill that? Or what do we even do with that stuff? And who, again, whose responsibility is it? So, I'm sure that that's figured out to some degree, but I don't think it's clear to everybody what that, that story is. Um, and, and then the sighting and the screening, a lot of people are really concerned with the aesthetic and how it affects. It's also eating up farmland, you know? There's opportunities to connect with it. But again, I think our town is already producing several times the energy that we consume in our town, you know, uh, so a lot of solar. Solar, okay. yeah, yeah. Because there's a number of. Uh, and what? And what? what is, so that, so is that electricity then is basically being wasted? No, it's fed into the grid, and I mean, wherever the demand is, that gets sucked up. I don't, I don't fully understand actually how long that's available, and yeah, because you can't overload. Like I know they were running into this. This is one issue as far as that. Uh, that expansion, the, the connector, they're calling it the, the Vermont Green Line, is the name of the um, high voltage DC transmission line down to Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Right. The Green Line, right. you know. Right. And uh, <laughs> the thing was that initially they were just going to put 400 mega. They were, well, they were proposing running two lines, two 400 megawatt lines. They were only ever going to use the one. But maybe down the line they would do the second one because which I can understand from a, an investment in materials and stuff like right. the cost of the extra line is the big in the same trend. Yeah. They're you know, yeah. it's, it's only again it's small diameter. It's, uh, and so, yeah, they've already dug it, they've yeah. gotten the right to do it, like whatever. So let's just put in two, but we're never gonna use the second. But if they did use the second because there's all this power already being fed back into the grid, yeah. which is not really how the grid was designed initially, just to have power being fed in and then distributed back out through the solar arrays and stuff. Um, it seemed likely that they were going to have to scale up the transmission lines. Um, you know, the, the high voltage transmission lines, in this case, they're like, you know, really big telephone poles. Right. But wood, 
but they scale it up beyond that, and you get to those monster-like metal, yeah, yeah, big stuff. Yeah. And apparently, it's the utility that owns that bill, which means the ratepayers are paying for that. Yeah. So the power company, the intermediary, brings in the juice. Oh, but there's not enough. Well, now we all put the bill to scale up the infrastructure. Uh-huh. Um, if it's, if it's, if it's, I might be oversimplifying it a little bit, but yeah. there's, there's some of the issues that come with the scaling up of all that. Yeah. And then we all deal with the EMF, we all deal with the vibrations mm-hmm. that occur, well, the people within proximity deal with that. Yeah. I think it's estimated by the, NA, by the NIH that if you live within a quarter mile of a high tension line, you're more likely to get leukemia and an array of what they call autoimmune deficiency related diseases. Because of how it disrupts your electromagnetic field, which is directly connected to your endocrine system, so your whole health is compromised by proximity to high tension lines. So the pattern here that we're talking about, just to synopsize a little bit the theme we were discussing, is really when you start to transfer electricity, you get into a lot of really questionable territory as far as the health hazards to human beings in the landscape. And ultimately, that's the real barometer indicator of good design is human health. And is it a good idea in terms of that? Can we honestly say that we need to be fragmenting ecologies, creating massive industrial infrastructures so that we can have lights at night, hot water, the material comforts, as I like to say, that we've grown accustomed to, it seems conceivable to me that we could achieve those things with a much more reasonable, appropriate means. And that's why Mark and I were discussing, and Mark was focusing on the efficiency measures in Vermont. You know, one of the interesting catchphrases that Amory Lovins has is he says, the cheapest barrel of oil is the one you never buy. And that pointing to the, the rationale behind things, the first thing to do is cut down on your need for off-site or outside your geographic region energy supplies by cutting down on the need for those outside region supply lines. You improve your autonomy, improve your quality, and cut down on this really industrial concept of energy and how to transport it across the landscape. And it gets a lot into some of these variables that Mark's elaborating on about the privatization of energy, who's making money off of the increase in scale to transfer it through the landscape and really to understand that ultimately people end up paying a price for that without even oftentimes in this country being really privy to the fact that there's some potential health hazards to being in proximity to a high tension line, and there definitely is a measurable one. So, as we start to wrap up our theme here, because really this is a theme that we could start to get into in several episodes, I just wanted to ask ask you to maybe say anything in general that you'd like to get into about your uh, stuff you're doing. Um, Yeah. We sort of open it up and say, you know, what do you want to share more broadly speaking? I think that uh, I, I appreciate the, the, the diverse structure of 
scale that we could talk about when it comes to energy use because we're part of this larger pool of, of production and consumption. And, uh, you know, conservation is a really important way for us to approach it, but also we're kind of dealing with the, the patterns of the, you know, the, pool, the other members of the pool that we're participating with, be it industry or you know, neighbors or, you know, uh, I've found that just developing more literacy when it comes to like, you know, think, just thinking about and appreciating the sources of energy and the volume, becoming more literate and, and starting to understand like how we measure energy, what uses a lot of energy, you know, comparing different light bulbs to one another. Not that the light bulb is the solution, but it is certainly the symbol of, you know, the incredible majesty of electricity and also how far we can come with efficiency too. Um, and uh, and trying to be as conscious and you know and, and conservative as we can, but also recognizing that you know we're part of this incredibly uh, interconnected pool of, of users, and, uh, and we're not getting super like overly bogged down. And so when it comes to all these issues of you know energy production and consumption. Um, personally, as an individual, I feel like it's almost an enjoyable challenge to see how I can be as comfortable as I can while using as little as I can. Like, the, the challenge of being efficient is something that I don't get frightened by overly or, you know, too critical of myself. I see it as, as an opportunity to just see how I can always do better, be it thinking about how I build a fire or how I keep the space that I live in using the fire as efficiently, how I can use as little wood as possible. Not because I feel like I'm inherently bad for using more wood, knowing that there's so much errant waste in the landscape around me amongst friends and neighbors, amongst, and not to put myself on a pedestal in yeah. that, but just to say that, uh, yeah, we're, we're, I shouldn't be a martyr knowing that there are people all around me that are, are you know, have the TV, the radio, and the internet going while they're, like, just running their car for fun outside or to warm it up for an hour, yeah. So, you know, I, I try to have fun with the challenge and not feel like I'm uh, subverted by it. Because in the end of, at the end of the day, energy is so cheap in our culture. So it's really more out of respect for the the investment for the the resource that it's become. It's, it's really just out of respect for the resource and out of uh, a desire to constantly improve, recognizing there's so much potential to do that. And this is where the the, the side of me that really has math is, is feels very happy because I know that one BTU is the amount of energy it takes to raise the temperature of one pound of water by one degree Fahrenheit. So I can actually sit with my calculator and figure out how many BTUs would it takes for me to heat a shower. And I could then figure out how many pounds of wood of a specific species if I wanted to, to theoretically take to heat that. Or how many, you know, gallons or pounds of propane is that in the equivalent of. So 
I find that to be a really exciting opportunity for learning to have a, a metric to constantly strive to improve. Because it's fun. That's awesome. I think it's so key that we're looking at how do we live in ways that feel positive, that feel enjoyable, and that why paying attention to these more oftentimes subtle, but at the same time very significant dimensions to the world around us and really appreciating our own sensibilities and 